Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we'll really be looking at verses 37 through 43 this morning, but we're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 35, kind of a little overlap from last week. You know, as you look at this particular time in the life of Jesus in his earthly ministry, as we said last week, chapter 12 is bringing to a close his, his earthly public ministry. Last week, we saw that it said in, at the, in verse 36, these things Jesus spoke, and then he went away, and he hid himself from them. That, that's the close of all public ministry. Everything we're going to see, beginning in chapter 13, particularly, where he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be observing today a week or two ahead of schedule. We'll probably do it again at that time. But from, verse, from chapter 13 on, everything that is done until the cross is in private with his apostles. Everything he teaches, everything he says is to believers. To those who have come to faith in Christ, to those who have come to the light, as Jesus talked about last week, those who walk in the light will have light, but if you, if you don't walk in the light, you'll walk in darkness. If you walk in darkness, you won't know where you're going because you have no direction, you have no purpose, you have no understanding, because you don't understand the eternal important things. So, so, so John wants us to understand as this pivot is taking place from public ministry, three and a half years of everything being seen, everything out in the open, to now a private ministry that he's going to have just to those who are going to take the gospel literally to the, the ends of the earth. You just have to think that during this time, there was a little confusion among the disciples. You know, they too had thought that Jesus was going to establish a kingdom. I mean, they, they're beginning to get a little bit of the picture, but not all of it. And they really think Jesus ought to go into Jerusalem, cast out the Romans, set up his, king, his kingdom on the throne of David, and rule there and reign there and just make everything happy for Israel. And they must be just a little bit confused when the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and the masses, the most of the people, do not believe. Surely they look at those miracles, those seven signs that John has given us, and, and they've seen lame men walk, they've seen men blind from birth to see again, they, they've seen water turned to wine, they've seen all of these miracles done, 5,000 people fed, and finally that, that miracle that was the epitome of all the miracles speaking into a grave of a dead man and saying, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. Lazarus came alive. Lazarus waddled, he didn't walk very good, but he waddled out of that grave. And they saw him alive. And he said, loose him and let him go. Take off the grave clothes. He doesn't need those anymore. Those were for, were for death. He's alive now. Take him away. And surely the disciples thought, Anybody in their right mind, and particular anybody who has been taught the law and the prophets and the old covenant, knowing what was prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, surely they see these signs as marks of the Messiah. Surely they'll believe, and they don't. That's got a feeling Peter and John and James and all the others that were there with him must have been just a little bit perplexed, just a little bit confused. So why the people didn't say, wow, 
those signs prove who he is. I want you to understand something that's very important. Miracles and signs will never cause a person to believe. You probably have people tell you, well, if God would do this, I would believe. They won't. You know, that's just an excuse. That's just a that's just a sort of an aside that, well, well, if God will produce and if God will do for me, then I'll believe in him. But listen, these people saw him do the most phenomenal, most unbelievable signs and miracles that the world has ever seen, and they still didn't believe. And John deals with that just a little bit in this passage we're looking at today, why they didn't. Partially it's because their hearts are hardened. Partially because even their unbelief is part of the perfect plan of God to bring salvation to the world, not just to Israel. Thus, out of the passage that Scott read this morning from Isaiah, John uses that passage as part of his defense, part of his argument as to why the people don't believe. So hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you, Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may, that you may become sons, and daughters, children, if you will, of, of the light, of light. It's his last public charge to believe to the people. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away, and he hid himself from them. I will say his last public charge until after the resurrection. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them. You see that? Though he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, 1. A little different from the translation Scott read, but basically the same concept, the same idea. I'll come back to that. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, coming out of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah spoke, said, because he saw his glory, Christ's glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. That's an interesting statement. They saw the signs they didn't believe, but there were some among even the rulers who believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Have you heard that before? I'll remind you in a minute. But look at verse 43. Here's the diagnosis. For they love the approval of man or men rather than the approval of God. They love the approval of men. They love the glory of men 
They love the affirmation of men more than the glory, approval, and affirmation of God. There's John's diagnosis of the whole situation. But I want you to see what he's saying here. I want you to see in those first verses that Jesus spoke that we read from last week. He's challenging them. He's saying, walk in the light. He's already spoke that judgment is now upon the world. The rule of the world is being cast out. And and if I'm lifted up, I will draw men to myself. He's already saying that this judgment is here. And judgment is not a, a pretty thing. We've long passed the days when our pulpits were the, the standard staple in the pulpits was, you know, hellfire and damnation. You know, get saved so you don't go to hell. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, unless we never mention the fact that judgment is a reality, that hell is a reality, that separation from God and the experience of God's wrath upon an unbeliever is a reality. And that's what Jesus is saying here in just very succinct and very pointed terms. Judgment is now in the world, and if you're either in the light and the, and the wrath of God has already been turned away from you by the propitiation of Jesus Christ, by the work of Christ in your life, or the judgment of God, the wrath of God is resting upon you because you're not in Christ. Jesus said it's, it's the only thing, two things that there are. And as he teaches his disciples and prepares them to go out in the world, he's going to deal more with that. And he's going to say, I am the only way. I'm the only way that anyone can come to me. So it's your responsibility, it's your purpose, it's your goal in life to get that gospel out to the world because unless they believe in me, they are under judgment, not just for now, but for all of eternity. And and Jesus sees that as an important part of the message as he closes his message to the masses. And John says he pulls away. John is looking at the, at the leaders. He's looking at the Pharisees. He's looking at the Sanhedrin. And he's saying, you know, he performed all these signs, all these miracles. They saw it. They heard about it through word of mouth if they didn't see it. It was, it was filling Jerusalem and filling Palestine the discussion of what was taking place in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, there was nowhere you could go in Jerusalem by this time that somebody wasn't saying, did you hear what Jesus did? Did you you hear about this miracle or that miracle, this sign or that sign? Did you hear what Jesus did? And, And the people, if they said no, they were told about it, even by unbelieving people. This is what he's done. This is what I saw. This is what's happening around the life of Jesus. John's perplexed. He said, man, he performed all these signs, many signs in their presence, and yet they were not believing in him. In the the latter part of this, he says, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so he kind of ties that in, and we'll see how that ties in a minute. But, But I want you to see... John is showing here that man is absolutely responsible for his unbelief, absolutely responsible for his lacking of seeing the light. But at the same time, he says, I want you to understand that God is not not held captive by that. God's purpose and God's plan is not thwarted by that. As a matter of fact, their disbelief, their unbelief was prophesied by Isaiah. It was a part of God's plan. And even their disobedience, while it's theirs to pay for, it's theirs to suffer for, is used as a part of the plan of God. God is not 
thwarted by our disobedience. God is not God in his perfect plan is not hindered by our sin and our not being obedient to him, nor was he by the Israelites. He said, Isaiah spoke these words. He said, this is these their unbelief is to is to fulfill the word of Isaiah. The reason was they could not believe. For Isaiah said, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. And either there's a part of this, like in Pharaoh's heart being hardened, he's hardening the leaders because there must be a break from, Ju- from Judaism. There must be a break and a moving into the uttermost parts of the earth. The Greeks have come to him and said, we want to see Jesus. And those Gentiles are now about to hear the glory of the gospel that until this time had been confined right there in Jerusalem. John says, I want you to understand that their disbelief is a part of the purpose of God. It's a part of the plan of God. But I also want you to understand they are not guiltless because of it. It says they, they go about and they, they have some, though, after, they, after Isaiah has seen his glory. Now, some wonder about what he's talking about there. Was he just prophesying to the coming of Christ? Or was he, was he going back in, in chapter 6 there particular that second passage out of 6, 9, and 10, was he talking about that Isaiah's experience in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? You remember that? He saw the holiness of, of God. Did he also see the preexistent Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ? Not preexistent, pre-incarnate Christ uh, previous, prior to his coming into the world as a baby in Bethlehem, did he see the pre-incarnate Christ there in that temple vision? And John says he saw the glory of him that was to come. And he spoke of it. Most people in reading Isaiah will say, well, God's talking to Isaiah there. God is saying, Isaiah, you're going to speak and nobody's going to listen. You know, one of the most lonely jobs in the world is being a, 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 a prophet in Israel. You understand that? I mean... Even God prepared them for it by saying, did Jeremiah this way? Did Ezekiel this way? Did Isaiah this way? He said, listen, I want you to go and I want you to proclaim judgment. I want you to go and proclaim holiness. I want you to go and proclaim their disobedience. I want you to call them to repentance. And I want to do it with all your heart. And and, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. Can you imagine how lonely that must feel? I want you to give it all you've got, Isaiah. I want you to tell them the the truth of the the Word of God. I want you to declare my purpose in their life. But they're not going to listen. Moses dealt with that back all the way in in the wilderness, if you remember, back in Deuteronomy. And just hear these words back in Deuteronomy 29 when when they're in the wilderness. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land. We sang about that this morning, that first song, Great is the Lord Almighty. Had Pharaoh drowned in the, in the Red Sea, the children of Israel passed over on safety. He said, you've seen all this before your eyes, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And yet in seeing all those great works, they didn't see. John is saying that's what's happening with the leaders here. 
Isaiah's words are being fulfilled. They were talking about Isaiah's immediate circumstance, but they were also prophesying ahead to the coming of Christ. And they were words of prophecy, seeing the glory of Christ and declaring what was going to take place. In verse 42, nevertheless, he just said in verse 37, he performed miracles and they were not believing. But nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Remember back in 9, chapter 9, the, the man who was born blind, and, and when he had sight, he was telling everybody, and they were questioning him. And they, the Pharisees went out and found his parents and said, was he really born blind? Are you, are you, is he trying to pull one over on us? Or was he really? And they said, listen, don't, don't ask us. He's an adult. 30-something years he's, he's lived as a blind man. But don't ask us. And John says they said that. They put it back on him because they knew that the Pharisees had already said that anybody that confesses Christ, anybody that says, I believe that he is the Messiah, will be put out of the synagogue. We dealt with that back then in chapter 9. And the synagogue was not just their church. Synagogue was their life. To be put out of the synagogue was not just to say you can't come to worship. To be put out of the synagogue was to say you are ostracized from your family, your friends, and the nation. You will have no place in all of Israel if you're put out of the synagogue. That's what was being said. And so the, the leaders here, even some of the rulers... Even those who you thought would be able to defend themselves against it were not confessing him, for they they feared that for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. The same fear the parents of the man born blind had, the same fear that everybody had in that day when they saw the miracles of Christ. The Pharisees were very quick. If you confess him, if you believe in him, if you say that he is the Christ, the Messiah, then you're done for. John says, because of that, they kept quiet. Now, we know that Nicodemus later is revealed as one of the Sanhedrin who believed in Christ. We find out at his crucifixion at the end of that day that Joseph of Arimathea was one who believed in him and came and asked for the body and placed it in his tomb, prepared it, placed it, rolled the stone up. We know that at least those two who were part of the Sanhedrin, part of the governing body, part of the ones here John is no doubt talking about that, that were not confessing him, they believed in him, but were not confessing him because they feared they would be put out of the synagogue. They feared that they would be cut off, ostracized, looked down upon, ridiculed persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Then he said, verse 43, for they loved, they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now let's just think about that a minute. Let's think about that in not application to the rulers of Israel. Let's think about that in relation to our lives. Let's think about that in how we do or don't confess Christ every day, 
where we go. How we do or don't confess Christ in the workplace or in the school or in our social groups or wherever it is, are we so hungry and so desirous and so wanting and loving the approval of men that we refuse the approval of God because we we refuse to confess Christ in those instances? Are we so caught up in being sure that we have the glory of men? Listen, I struggle with that as a pastor, believe it or not. I mean, I struggle with how much do I speak? Am I going to, if I speak out in in other settings beside this pulpit, I mean, I'm bold in this pulpit. I'll say whatever I want to say in this pulpit. I'll, I'll clearly confess Christ. But what about when I'm out at the coffee shop or out in another place and there's just people around, not you guys? Start to say normal people, but you know, it's a question we ought to ask. That's a question we ought to ask ourselves. On a scale of one to ten, do I want the approval of men or do I want the approval of God? Am I more more? inclined to pursue acceptance with men if I know that my confession of Christ will indeed cause some kind of ostracizing by those who hear it? You know, I I heard a story this week, and I, I think it's, I only heard part of it, so I'll probably butcher it, but Retta told me, and it was something I think somebody mentioned in the in the Bible, ladies' Bible study about. I, I'm I'm not a regular watcher, but of the D- Dynasty show on TV. Yeah, I see those smiles. I know who you are. But evidently, one of the characters on there, they had a call ordering some duck calls, I guess, and and the person on the other end was rather blasphemous in his speech using God's name coupled with a slang word or a curse word or whatever you want to say, but using God's name in vain. And, and finally he said, look, why would you curse the name of the one person who can save you? Now, you know, he could have had a cancel on the duck calls. Of course, they're doing so well they don't need that, I'm sure. But, but he was bold in just speaking. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, standing out under umbrellas. A guy that I'd been in high school with, who's a year behind me, he was much taller than me, much bigger than me in every respect. I was skinny back then. And, and he was much bigger. And we were standing there, and he was just cursing the rain and everything else and using God's name coupled with an expletive. And, and I just looked at him, nothing bold about me. I just said, you know, I really wish you wouldn't use my father's name that way. And he hit me. I don't mean just, I mean he hit me. And he was big. I went on and licked my wounds and let him go his way. And that weekend, this was like on a Wednesday or Thursday, that weekend I get a phone call that says, Danny's looking for you. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> he wants to finish the job. 
And, uh, and I, I said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know where I'm going to be. He said, well, he really wants to see you. I said, yeah, I bet he does. And, and all weekend, I avoided Danny. I'll, I'll be honest. All weekend, I avoided him. He finally caught up with me on Sunday night. And I thought, this is it. Because he was big. And he said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, first of all, I want to ask your forgiveness for hitting you on the campus the other day at Jack State. I said, well, I, yeah, you're forgiven. I liked where it was going at the beginning. <laughs> and then he said, you know, that really made me think. Don't you know, on Friday night, I got with a friend who's a believer too. And I trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. I said, wow. All of a sudden, it was worth getting hit. He went on to be a preacher. Pastor down in the Orlando area now. I didn't get him into the Baptist bowl, but at least he's a pastor. And uh, a lot took place. Now, I don't do that to say, oh, look at me. Look what I did, because I passed by far too many opportunities. But you know, the, thing, the truth is, these, these Pharisees just wanted the pro- they wanted it to be kept in the synagogue. They wanted to, the approval of men more than they wanted the approval of God. How about you? What is the most important thing in your life? Acceptance by man? The approval of man? faithfulness and obedience to Christ you know and I, I can't answer that for you I don't know I, I know what I can hope for you I know what I hope for myself but I can only answer that for myself only you can answer it for yourself as we come to this table this morning you know Paul said that this table is to be a place of examination it's to be a place where we, we ask the hard questions of ourselves as we come before the Lord in communion with Him at the Lord's table. Examine yourself, Paul says, to see if, be sure you're of the faith. I want you to examine yourself in one way this morning. There's a lot of ways we could talk about. But I want you to examine yourself in one way. And then I just want you to ask the Lord. Lord, Using Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, and try my heart. Search me and know my every thought. Why don't you ask him this? Lord, do I love the approval of men more than your approval? Am I more captivated by what others say than I am of what you say. And let the Holy Spirit be a searchlight in your life on that this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes as we prepare our hearts for this supper. The deacons who are going to serve are going to come and prepare.
You just pray. Seek his face. As I said before, if you're a baptized believer in good standing with a a gospel-believing church, whether you're a member of grace or not, I invite you to participate in this meal for his glory, for his purpose. If you're here and not a believer, I ask you to ask to, to just allow the plate to pass by you. Because Paul said this is a meal of communion between Christians and their Lord. But if you're not a believer, as you let it pass by, I ask you to consider the meaning of these elements. His body on the cross. His blood poured out as blood of the new covenant. And I would ask you to call upon the mercy of God through Christ. To believe in Him. Who God has sent. Father, we ask your blessings on this meal, on this bread, on this fruit of the vine. May we take of it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. You continue to pray as we prepare to pass this to you. As the bread and the juice comes to you, I ask you to... Hold them until we partake of the meal together. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this... But we also exalt or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So what shall we say to these things? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead 
through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The Gospels tell us that on that night preparing for the Passover and reinterpreting the Passover Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you to be given on the cross in just a few days. This is my body which is given for you. Take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. And going back to the Old Testament statements about the Passover lamb sacrificed by blood, the statement of the writer of Hebrews saying that without blood there is no forgiveness of sin, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. This is the blood that opens the way for relationship to know God and know him for, forever. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink it and do this in remembrance of me. There is no magic in these elements. There is memory in these elements. Memory of what our Lord has done on our behalf in giving himself to bear our sin, to bear our punishment, that we might be set free and that we might be cleansed by his work on that cross. Scripture tells us that after they did that, the apostles and Jesus sang a hymn, and then they went out. We're going to sing a hymn, it's a hymn of commitment, as well as a hymn of just preparing our own hearts to leave these doors. Amazing grace, my chains are gone. I invite you to Christ this morning if you don't know Christ. I invite you to come and confess your faith in Him, your trust in Him. I invite you to come for whatever reason. 
need to come prayer, to unite with this body, whatever God is doing in your life, you be obedient. You come as we sing. Let's stand together. Let's sing together.